Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 59, Under Control, recorded here on July 3rd, 2023. Happy Canada Day and Independence Day to all who celebrate. Uh, thank you for joining me today. I want to also offer a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible albums on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Maybe Days, and our outro is Buzzsaw Party Boy. All right, I have corrections. I may have said in an earlier podcast that if you were looking for my final thoughts on an illusion on, on the allusions to Alice's adventures in Wonderland that you'd find it in this episode, and that has proven to be incorrect. I will be doing that in the episode Descent, but that is no longer episode 59. It is now episode 61. That's because the chapter Return was too darn big, and I split it into three episodes, and by splitting that episode into three, it expanded the total episode tally. You know how this goes, and so Descent will be two episodes later. My apologies, but tune in then for a review of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and how it relates to Jurassic Park. In the last episode, I said that Ernst Stromer was a paleontologist from the 1800s, which isn't quite correct. Yes, he was born in 1886, but his work on Spinosaurus and his career as a paleontologist was spent almost entirely in the 1900s, including the famous trip to the Bahariya Formation in 1910. So he was a 20th century paleontologist whose magnum opus was certainly in the 1900s. I was incorrect in describing him as a paleontologist from the 1800s. And finally, in my conversation with Dr. Dodson about ex excreting excess salt, I wondered if the expression crocodile tears may have come from this behavior. The expression means one is performing an insincere display of emotions, which may have its roots dating back to observing a crocodile weeping over the animal which it has preyed and is preying upon. However, crocodiles lubricate and clear their eyes with fluid from their tear ducts, and in saltwater crocodiles, the tears help rid of the excess salt that they take in with their food. And as we heard from our guests, Will and David, from the Common Descent podcast in episode 20, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, they said, if there's a behavior that is shared between crocodiles and birds, it's likely that dinosaurs were doing it too. And Dr. Dodson was describing how birds, like the albatross, excretes excess salt as well. So perhaps we can chalk this up as a very dinosaur or a likely dinosaur behavior, excreting excess salt through their nostrils and tear ducts. Dinosaur news. Our first news story is from the journal Plus One from June 7th, 2023, called An Early Diverging Iguanodontian from the Late Cretaceous of North America. The paper reports the discovery of a new early diverging ornithopod, Yanni Smithi, from the Cenomanian age of the Late Cretaceous. The Cenomanian is the beginning of the Late Cretaceous, right after the end of the early Cretaceous, and this transition in geologic time will be reflected in the animal's etymology. Yanni is from the Latin form of Janus, which stems from the Roman god who presides over transitions and in reference to the changing biota of the mid-Cretaceous of Western North America. The species nomen honors Joshua Aaron Smith for his contributions to the discovery and conservation of paleontological resources in the region. Particularly, early explorations by the NCMNS, which is the North Carolina Museum of Natural Science. The holotype, NCSM29373, housed at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, was uncovered from the Cedar Mountain Formation. It's comprised of a largely complete disarticulated skull, cervical, dorsal, sacral, and caudal vertebrae, associated ribs and hymal arches, portions of the right and left pectoral girdle, left pelvic girdle, right forelimb, and right hindlimb. What makes Yanni distinct are some 
apomorphic traits in its skull on the frontal, squamosal, brain case, and premaxilla, including the presence of three premaxillary teeth. And the characteristics of Yanni's teeth help categorize it as a rhabdodontomorph, which is a type of derived iguanodon. Quote, the identification of this new species permits refinement of previously identified records in the Mosuntikit dinosaur assemblage of indeterminate Iguanodontian and Tenontosaurus, and offers essential information on the evolutionary history, paleobiogeography, and morphological trends within Rhabdodontomorpha, an emerging yet taxonomically unstable clade of poorly known early diverging ornithopods that current evidence suggests may have had a more global distribution than historically recognized. Uh, imagine this creature was, you know, about 10 feet long, semi-bipedal, had a long snout, a horny beak, and grinding teeth with large shoulders and forelimbs. Our second news item today is another new rhabdodontid dinosaur described in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology in November 2022 called A New Ornithopod Dinosaur, Transylvanosaurus, Platycephalus from the Upper Cretaceous of the Hateg Basin in Romania. Many rhabdodontid remains from Romania have been referred to an animal named Zelmoxis, but this new dinosaur differs from all previously reported rhabdodontids by having a series of shapes in its skull that are unique, which includes special unique measurements to things like straight paroccipital processes, curves that project, quote, mostly posterolaterally, and other hyperspecific details like, quote, massive prootic processes that extend, quote, mainly anterolaterally and ventrally, etc. Don't ask me what any of that means. Um, but they, they say that these are specific differences, and they are in the skull. The phylogenetic analysis machine says that this rhabdodontid at the base of the iguanodontian radiation says that this is a rhabdodontid at the, quote, base of the iguanodontian radiation, and authors believe there is a close familial relationship to the actual rhabdodon itself, which is known from southern France. This relationship, quote, provides evidence for a more complex biogeographic history of the rhabdodontidae than previously thought. This creature was a bit smaller than Yanni, only around six point something feet long, and is known from uh, the very latest of the late Cretaceous rather than the earliest of the late Cretaceous. And the name Transylvanosaurus platycephalus derives from the Latin trans, meaning across, silva for forest, and the Greek word soros for lizard to make the forest crossing lizard, or lizard from Transylvania. Uh, plus, platy is Greek for wide, and cephalus is Greek forehead, referring to the exceptionally wide skull compared to other rhabdodontids. So, this is the wide skulled Transylvania lizard. The holotype LPB or FGGUB R2070 housed at the Laboratory of Paleontology and the Faculty of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Bucharest in Romania was uncovered from the Hatag Basin and it's comprised of a fragmentary skull. So what does this critter's discovery mean? The authors note, quote, previously the presence of two distinct lineages of rhabdodontids in the late Cretaceous of Europe has been proposed based on their respective paleogeographic distribution and phylogenetic position. The first lineage was considered to have been restricted to Western Europe, as well as potentially Southern France and Northeastern Spain, while the second lineage was from Austria and Hungary and Romania. Quote, the findings of the current study, identifying a new rhabdodontid taxon in Western Romania that is apparently more closely related morphologically to Western European taxa such as rhabdodon, challenge this concept of two distinct and geographically separated lineages of rhabdodontids inhabiting the Eastern and Western parts of the late Cretaceous European archipelago, and suggests more complex, although yet incompletely understood, patterns of the rhabdodontid evolutionary history. And I think we were hearing some of uh, that strange history in the, the, mo the more recent other rhabdodont story in the first episode there, or in the first half of this news section. With the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. 
I'm very pleased to have Dr. Darren Nash on the show today. Darren is a British paleontologist and author of many books, including the Dinopedia published by Princeton, Ancient Sea Reptiles by Smithsonian Books, as well as a science communicator and founder of Tetrapod Zoology, a cryptid skeptic, and also the chief scientific consultant for Prehistoric Planet and Prehistoric Planet 2, now streaming on Apple TV+. Thank you, Darren, for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I'll never forget where I was when I met Darren because it was exactly the same moment when Teddy Roosevelt was shot by a new species of taper, which was riding a moose in the forests of Pennsylvania. So uh, you don't forget a thing like that. <laughs> I remember it well. Yes. And for the, it was only five minutes ago, and it wasn't the Teddy Roosevelt, but it was uh, very interesting altogether. <laughs> so um, you were telling me before we... Um, just a little while ago, that you you were just returning now from the Ninth International Symposium on Pterosaurs <laughs> in Crato City, Brazil. How was the trip? How was the symposium? Oh, oh, it's a sad, sad tale. <laughs> oh no! Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, it was a complete disaster. Um, uh, so, getting from England to Brazil, there's several different routes, and the one that was booked for me involved Frankfurt in Germany, and then to Sao Paulo, and due to unseasonable stormy conditions over central europe the first flight was really late which meant i didn't make the one brazil and it resulted in a whole series of knock-on events and i didn't go <laughs> so i couldn't go i had to cancel oh no so, that is too bad yeah. did you have a presentation that you missed or were you just kind of cool yeah oh that's yeah, yeah i was i was specifically there for a kind of like a uh, a roundtable discussion or a, a workshop event mm -hmm. on something to do with the popularization of pterosaurs. So I had a presentation prepared on uh, the pterosaurs that I've mostly worked on technically are the, the, the group called the Azdar Kids that includes the famous Quetzalcoatlus. Yeah, I was going to talk about like, you know, how I've been involved in the promotion of those animals through various bits of artwork uh, and media projects including prehistoric planet uh, work that i've done with my colleague uh, mark Wynn, and uh, yeah and i prepared a whole presentation mm -hmm. on that. and it yep it never what, happened what a shame yeah well i'm sorry to hear that uh uh yeah you can fill a barn with things i don't know about pterosaurs i i have seen that they they uh certainly because of some of your consulting and science communication you know they're, they're getting exciting reconstructions and you know more fun stories are, are told about them uh coming up i know prehistoric planet has the it's the barbarodactylus uh they gets a spotlight yeah. in the first season did they return in sec uh, the second season uh, yes we focus on uh pterosaurs uh, in several stories um uh, in particular the the, uh, the ashdar kids mm -hmm. we have a sequence in the first episode the islands episode uh, about the possible predatory behavior of Hatzagopteryx, which is a, a giant, thick-necked Asdarkid from uh, Romania. And we also uh, have a couple of sequences based around the behavior of Quetzalcoatlus. Mm -hmm. We do some other pterosaur stuff as well, but right now, without my notes in front of me, I've kind of forgotten. But uh, <laughs> we certainly, yeah, we give pterosaurs more than uh, their fair time mm -hmm. in, the, in the limelight. And uh, people have really enjoyed seeing them brought to life. Yeah, it's been well, a huge success. If people like dinosaurs because they're strange and alien, it uh, the pterosaurs are, are, are equally fascinating, for, that's for sure. They're certainly big, and I know the Barbarodactylus has like an antler-shaped crest on its head that uh, is just the most bizarre yeah. thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's Barbara Douglas itself is not is not well known. It's known from from bits and pieces that don't include much skull material. But we know it belongs to a group called the Nyctosaurs, and we know for sure that other members of that group had these bizarre yet yeah, antler-like crests. So we extrapolated that, I think, reasonably onto Barbara Douglas. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in terms of their popularity, I mean, for the average viewer, you know, most people don't really have a clear concept of where dinosaur ends and begins and pterosaurs mm. are kind of regarded as sort of default dinosaurs mm. we, we we wherever possible you say that's not actually accurate <laughs> but i think it's fair to say you know i'm more than happy to say that you know if you like dinosaurs you know pterosaurs are close kin and equally interesting and the marine reptiles which also are not mm. dinosaurs at all are also so interesting and living at the same time that um yeah let's talk about all these all these animals together i think we can get uh, as as a people, um, <laughs> really focused on dinosaurs, and maybe we just see the the marine reptiles and the pterosaurs as kind of also rans. But if you ever take a moment, there are a tremendous diversity of of these animals that are are known. I, it blows me away to see how many pterosaurs people know about. I mean, you think pteranodon, <laughs> gets to go out, you know, pterodactyl, but really, there's so much out there. And I was just blown away with um with how many like mosasaurs there actually are. And, it's astonishing that there's so much there if you just go and look really something yeah i think like they've always been you know if you think if you think of like popular depictions of prehistoric animals from the age of dinosaurs people have been you know they have uh, put pterosaurs pterodactyls and marine reptiles you know in in it. think of fantasia for example you know disney's mm -hmm. fantasia there's, there's dinosaurs of the stars but pterosaurs and marine reptiles are in there so much that if you ask an average person, a non-specialist, someone with non-specialist, you know, knowledge, what's your favourite dinosaur? They'll say the pterodactyl, and the, <laughs> the the plesiosaur. You know, those those are kind of those are kind of in there as well. They're, they're part of the same canon for most for most people. And yeah, you're right in terms of you know the the deeper sort of scientific understanding. There's they are at least as interesting, you know, arguably more interesting according to what your own, you know, special interests are. Mm -hmm. And those of us interested in dinosaurs um, are quite familiar with the idea that there's this, you know, massive, like, change in our understanding of what dinosaurs were like, a thing that's happened since the, the sort of 60s and 70s. But the same thing has happened to pterosaurs and marine reptiles. They've also undergone these, like, major revolutions in you know how we how we see them what we understand what we know about them and how many we've discovered because yeah you, you mentioned how many mosasaurs we know the discovery curves for those groups of animals pterosaurs plesiosaurs mosasaurs uh, ichthyosaurs yeah, yeah we've, we're finding more and more and more species there's uh, that was meant to be a graph a an upward curve <laughs> on a graph but um yeah yeah there's 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 they're so amazing uh, and i think that if you were alive if you were a time traveler going back to look at them it's like well the dinosaurs are incredible, but oh my god, these pterosaurs, oh my god, these marine mm -hmm. reptiles, they are also, you know, just phenomenal creatures. Well, I know that Kitsaquatlas was a very, very famous one uh, for a long time, and then when Walking with Dinosaurs came out, they had the uh, the Ornithochirus that uh, got its moment in the sun. I don't know how famous it ever became, but uh, certainly if Barbarodactylus were unfamiliar, it is certainly going to be much more familiar now, and uh, I understand that there has been... a, a a spin-off. Um, Margot Robbie is playing the cousin uh, of the Barbie in theaters now, which is pretty good. So, 
<laughs> I'll have to go and see it for that reason alone. You yeah. Could, the, uh, yeah <laughs> they could be more is pink. There a, is there a, yeah, is there a Ken, Ken Dactylus as well? I mean, let's, that, uh... That's up to you guys, but you can do it, I think. <laughs> Uh, so, pterosaur fossils, what are they generally like? Um, I can only imagine that they're fragile or, or scant, or maybe they're great. I don't know. When you, when you find them, are they impressions? Are they bits? <laughs> yes. Yes to all of those things. Oh. So, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this the wrong way around. Okay. So, I love it. That's To fine. start with, well, well, well it'll, make, it'll make sense in the end. For many of them, for example, you know, we've been talking about Kessel Quatlas, the bones of Quetzalcoatlus are like its upper arm bone is not that different in length from like your own. You know, it's like it's a it's a big old bone. It's a big thick bone, and those animals lived in continental environments. Animals that are, that are big and live in continental environments, they rarely get preserved like in one go. Instead, they break up into pieces and their bones, you know, tumble around in rivers and streams and whatnot. And as a consequence, the fossils are isolated mostly, not entirely, but you know, most so. A lot of the larger pterosaurs, we're talking about fragmentary remains. We're at a point in history where people are looking worldwide, you know, for the remains of these animals, you know, searching for them in new areas. So more and more and more are found, you know, every year. So there's a there's a large number of isolated large pterosaur remains. But to, to bring this back, as I said, it was going to be around the wrong way. In terms of complete fossils, there's also a long history of people finding fully 100% complete articulated pterosaur skeletons. And ironically, you know, in terms of how history normally plays out uh, with respect to fossils, ironically, people first found the complete ones. So pterosaurs were first documented in uh, 18th century uh, Europe, in Germany specifically, from a rock unit called the Solnhofen limestone, which you, you've probably heard of, a late Jurassic famous, uh, very fine grain limestone that was used for printing. And people like they break open these like sort of leaves, these like really nicely flat uh, like layers of this this fine limestone, and it was preserved at the bottom of like uh, a bunch of Jurassic lagoons. And there are complete insects and sea jellies and various other animals like that. And I think it's 1774, um, uh, a scientist called uh, I think it's called Cosimo Callini describes the very first pterosaur, this com complete pterodactyl skeleton. And it's the original pterodactyle, as it's named by Georges Cuvier, the great French pioneer of comparative anatomy. He says this is some kind of weird, like flying reptile type creature with a super long finger. Uh, it's got long jaws and you know, multiple pointed teeth. That is the original pterosaur. It's, it's technically becomes known as pterodactylus. Pterodactylus is the first pterosaur to be found. And then in the decades that follow, people find a number. Off the top of my head, I don't know how many. I'm going to say like 10 different species of Solnhofen pterosaurs that are equally complete. So these animals with a wingspan of, say, less than a meter, they're kind of like the size of, I don't know, like a hawk or a sort of raven, that, that, animals that kind of size. So... Uh, so yeah, and some of those have got not just complete articulated skeletons, thus fossils from the Sondheim and limestone, they have their soft tissues preserved, they have their wing membranes preserved, mm. webbing between their toes, some of them have got scales and hairs preserved, and we now know of several places in the world, not just in Europe, but in Central Asia, uh, China, where uh, there are these unusual deposits, they're called Lagerstätten, uh, places of exceptional preservation. 
where yeah there's complete pterosaurs complete pterosaurs preserved you know they their bodies sank to the bottom of like lagoons or lakes and they were covered by fine grained sediment that prevented decomposition so so yeah we've got a good number of fragmentary ones a good number of like middling ones where it's like half a skeleton uh and but a, but a good number of complete ones and we've had those from early on so that's really different from the history of dinosaurs where of course for a long time as you'll know people were finding you know bits and pieces and they were just like what the hell <laughs> kind of animal is this from <laughs> uh, that's right I, uh the early fossils were were mysteries well that's really cool so you're mentioning that um uh, the remains are often found in like species that were living in, a, in a, the continental area of a land. Do we know like um, and certainly you need a depositional environment to to make preservations, especially at the bottom of a lagoon and things like that. But pterosaurs are often depicted uh, on cliff sides and things like that. Um, what could be? I mean, when you put the pieces together, the ones you find, what do you from the formations they are discovered in? What sort of environments were they living in? And there's those wonderful depictions of a. Uh, the Ashdarkids, which where they're so big and they're you know terrestrial instead of uh, necessarily flying around so much. Like, um, how were these? What what kind of environments were these animals living in? Yeah, uh, it, that's a bit like saying I don't mean to be you know, disrespectful. But that's a bit like saying what environment <laughs> do birds live in? Yeah, <laughs> because you you are talking about a group of animals that were around for about 150 million years. Yes, so a vast span of time occurred globally, and we know of rat we've named about 200 ish species which is not going to be like the final count you know the, the the true number is going to be much much higher than that but you're talking about a group of animals that includes species that resemble swifts and nightjars species that resemble shorebirds and gulls and species that resemble frigate birds albatrosses the ash darkids which we've mentioned um they're not quite like anything alive today but the the closest thing is the closest thing to them would be like, imagine a stork the size of a giraffe. Mm. And that's that's, <laughs> that's the closest thing to what they're like. And if you think of that diversity that I just tried to summarize, yeah. well, that's animals that are living way out to sea, like, you know, like foraging out at sea, like albatrosses do today, to animals that are on coasts and lakes and estuaries and deltas, uh, and then to animals that are way inland. Like, you know, some of the Ashdarkids are truly continental animals. So, in in the terms of the Mesozoic world, the world during the age of dinosaurs, pterosaurs are kind of everywhere in every habitat. Mm -hmm. uh, so then it becomes a question of where do they get preserved? And, you know, fossils are mostly preserved in wetlands because that's where sedimentation happens. So we probably do have a biased fossil record because we are mostly seeing the pterosaurs that were living in kind of like, you know, sort of riverine, lakeside coastal places mm. um yeah so that, that those, those are the kinds of environments that we mostly associate them with but we also think uh, i think i'm repeating myself at this point but yeah we we also um think that like ashdarkids were occurring in you know they were in sort of like parkland style environments uh, and like forests and scrubland and some of them were truly you know there are some that are preserved in yeah, arid desert type environments so so yeah they're kind they're kind of everywhere in the in the age of the dinosaurs when i was briefly looking at them um i saw they were kind of categorized into species which had like a longer tail and ones that had a shorter tail 
which is interesting that that would be <laughs> how they get categorized. Um, and I don't even know if that's correct or not, but I was more interested in wondering, like, some some have teeth and some have lost their teeth. And I wonder what the story is with their the dentition. How um, did that change over, over you know, from the beginning to the extinction event or... or um, did they just lose them here and there, or how does how does the story of teeth in the pterosaurs play together? Yeah, yeah. Let me pick up the tail thing first. Yeah, because okay. uh, like the sort of traditional of classification was to say there were these two groups: the long-tailed ones and the short-tailed ones. But people always thought that the short-tailed ones evolved from among the long-tailed ones. We now think that is the case for for sure. We've got fossils that seem to represent kind of intermediates between both groups. So they're not the the long-tailed ones they used to be called rampharynchoids they're not a distinct group they're kind of like that's what pterosaurs were like to start with they were all long-tailed and at some point they evolved a shorter tail and then this like short-tailed group uh, emerged called the pterodactyloids now the pterodactyloids they all started out with teeth but on uh something like five or six different occasions different lineages evolved toothlessness they became toothless we're not entirely sure why this happens um, in history. We don't really know why it happened in birds or in various other groups of animals that have evolved toothlessness, uh, uh, ant-eating mammals and you know, uh, some, some whale and dolphin groups of toothless, for example. But um, it's clearly something to do with you know, foraging style and how they're, how they're handling their prey. But if you look at tooth diversity in pterosaurs, it's pretty considerable. Uh, now, really interesting thing about them is they start out so that a lot of the triassic toothed ones are markedly heterodont which obviously means they've got different types of teeth different shaped teeth so they've got like pointy fang-like ones at the front but then at the back of the jaws they've got multi-cusped um teeth that look like they're for sort of slicing and dicing prey and that might have been the sort of starting style of prey processing in pterosaurs to start with they're grabbing prey some of which which might have included a whole range of things like you know arthropods small fishes little amphibians little reptiles you know lizard-shaped reptiles they might have been grabbing those things and then slicing them up with the multi-cusp teeth at the back and then uh, in like, later history, in the Jurassic, you see this massive proliferation in tooth types. You see a whole bunch of them, that, to use the technical term, a, a good number of them that have forward-pointing spear-like teeth that seem to have been used to, to grab uh, prey, uh, fish and squids from the water surface. That's typical of animals like Rampharynchus, which is a well-known Jurassic pterosaur. Then you have others that proliferate in the number of like fine needle-like teeth they have, probably for straining fine prey out of water. This uh, kind of, I don't want to talk about evolution coming to an end, but this sort of culminates in members of the group that have like literally a thousand teeth, like a thousand bristle-like teeth in the lower jaw, which you know must have been used to sieve uh, prey uh, out of water. And then you have other groups like the Ornithochirids, you mentioned Ornithochirus, that don't have teeth at the back of the jaws, they now only have teeth at the front and they have this what we call a fish grab which is where these big you know as long as your fingers you know big long grabby teeth that almost certainly were used to to grab prey uh, either from the land surface or from the water surface and then in each one of these groups you sort of well not in each one of them but in quite a few of these groups yeah tooth loss occurs as well so ornithochiroids are probably 
uh, close to Pteranodon and its kin, and that so that's one case of of tooth loss. I, I could go, I could go on. There's there's just there's a lot of variation in tooth anatomy, jaw anatomy, um, feeding diversity, and in terms of how we actually you know piece together the pterosaur family tree and what we think the the patterns are. So there's a lot going on in pterosaur behavioral like you know, dietary diversity. That's really fascinating stuff. I, bl- I yeah I know that there's for everything that's exciting about dinosaurs, you could copy and paste it and just put pterosaurs in it, and, and I bet you it's all the same. Yeah, I found a neat connection between the symposium that you wanted to go to <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Jurassic Park. You ready for this? So I know what I know what it is, but do it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see. If, okay. Is it? Does it involve the novel? Yeah, the novel. Yeah. So in the novel, one of uh, there's the whole section in the aviary. I think they call it the birdcage. And the pterosaur there is Sierradactylus, which is named after Sierra State, which is where Crato in Brazil is, which is where I was meant to be going. Is is that what you were thinking? <laughs> That's exactly of? it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's always disappointing that, of course, they never, you know, you you when you're reading the book, you're wondering what's going to make it into the movie. Are mm. they going to have this like a uh, yeah? I, and they did discuss it at one point. I understand. Obviously, it inspired the uh, uh, the eerie sequence in. It's Jurassic Park three, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty cool. So that must be based on that. Yeah. The other thing that was really strange about uh, the Ciarodactylus was that uh, in the novel um, there was this mystery: why was John Hammond only funding Northern Digs? And it is explained in sort of a sloppy way that uh, oh, because if you grind up fossils from Northern Digs, um, because they're Northern, I guess that they preserve uh, because of temperature. <laughs> Uh, some bits of DNA, and so they're able to extract some DNA from the fossils from northern digs. But of course, Ciarodactylus is uh, from the southern hemisphere entirely, so it uh, <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Plus, I mean, it, the whole the whole matter is uh, a non-starter, really. But uh, they put it in well, there. And... <laughs> yeah, ma- ma- maybe they maybe they had discovered Ciarodactylus DNA in a northern dig site because, and an interesting thing about lots of these animals is. You know, think of an animal like an albatross today. It doesn't just live sure. in like one country, does it? They're sort of globally distributed. So uh, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a get out right. clause. Um, <laughs> another and a thing that you've got. To, I've got. I've got to mention this as a pterosaur expert. Ceratodactylus. The vision of this animal that Michael Crichton would have had in mind. That animal no longer exists. So Ceratodactylus was imagined as this super long jawed animal with this like strange kind of kink in the near the tip of the upper jaw and then and then one of these fish grab things again uh and that's how it was reconstructed it's turned out to it turned out to be a composite it turned out to be like more than one fossil cobbled together to make it look like that and yeah it didn't it didn't look uh uh if if they had reconstructed it for the film they would have you know, produced a reconstruction that's no longer thought mm-hmm. to be an animal that actually ever existed. Well, they still put teeth in a pteranodon, so I mean, I don't think they think that get in the way of a good story, right? <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, having a bit of a conversation on what. Um, how do you think it, it might have played out as as uh, as some theropods are are evolving into the the later Cretaceous into this avian line? they would have been competing in an aerial space with the pterosaurs, which would have been dominating that for a long, long time. How do you think that they might have interacted or limited one another? Or, or how, 
how would you imagine that uh, entering into a niche that, which is already dominated by these animals would be challenging for, for birds as they were coming up? Yeah, this, this question has been asked uh, many times in the technical literature because a popular idea about the pterosaur history is that pterosaurs went into decline as a consequence of the rise of birds. So birds originated in the probably the middle Jurassic and by the early Cretaceous there are birds that are sort of vaguely similar to modern shorebirds. So the idea is, yeah, if there's more and more birds around, is there less ecological space uh, for pterosaurs? Well, at the moment, the fossil record says, hey, it's cool. Every, like, it's, th this is not actually a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, there's loads of environments in the early Cretaceous where you've got large numbers of birds of numerous kinds living alongside pterosaurs, uh, of small pterosaurs. It's not like the small pterosaurs have all died out. The small pterosaurs, small as in a gull size, crow size, you know, they're still doing pretty well despite the rise of birds. And it doesn't seem that the two groups were in direct competition. And a bigger story here is that that's not really how ecology works. It's like competition happens on the level of sort of like, you know, individuals and species. It doesn't like the fact that there are birds doesn't stop bats existing, for example. Mm. And we know from the modern world that, you know, some some birds and some bats do actually eat the same things, but they're kind of, you know, using the habitat, using the environment in different ways. And that would have been the case at the time when uh, pterosaurs and birds were contemporary. So the rise of birds probably does not have anything to do with uh, the, the diversity of pterosaurs. Pterosaurs were doing okay. Now, there are a series of events during the Jurassic and during the Cretaceous that did knock out at least some pterosaur groups. Until recently, we did think that uh, by the very latest Cretaceous, um, pterosaurs were kind of going to die out anyway. The only ones left were the giant Ashdarchids like, like Casquellas. But a few finds from recent years, and this is kind of reflected in Prehistoric Planet, a few finds have shown that, no, this is not true. There were probably several pterosaur groups still thriving right up to the late Cretaceous. And we kind of suspect that there probably are more that we just haven't discovered yet, you know, more groups that are probably still hanging around. Ultimately, their extinction is due to the, obviously, the, the, big, the big event 66 million years ago. And if that if that hadn't happened, would there still be pterosaurs? Well, we can't answer that, but um, yeah, uh, I think it's likely that they wouldn't have gone extinct. They would, they would have persisted. So birds or not, um, yeah, uh, pterosaurs were still doing all right, even with birds there. And the last thing that really connects uh, in, in whatever I know about pterosaurs, which we uh, demonstrated is limited. Uh, <laughs> a neat argument that influences dinosaurs is that uh, as as integument structures and things like that begin to find themselves in the fossil record on dinosaurs, including the feathers, but also in some of the ornithischians, that uh, this idea that because pterosaurs had uh, structures as well that resembled fur, but it wouldn't have been fur. It would have been, well, you could tell me what I have. Who what it could have been? I don't know. But uh, that. Therefore, pterosaurs and the, the origins of dinosaurs share a common ancestor where that structure may have been uh, already present, and then therefore all the animals would have had something um, which they'd inherited uh, from, from their past ancestors. It feels like that isn't 100%, <laughs> but, uh, but it's out there. That, that argument is being investigated. What, um, 
how do you fall on that that connectivity that dinosaurs and pterosaurs share this integument on their bodies yeah 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 this this is you'll find really very strongly different views on this among yeah. experts and um so yeah pterosaurs definitely have yeah, these these fibers on their body technically they're called picno fibers because people have not wanted to call them hairs they wanted to come up with a different name mm -hmm. but think about like think about insects think about furry insects like do you you know most of us have no no shame in referring to like a bee or a moth as like furry or hairy mm -hmm. it's like you'd say so i think i think it's probably fine to say that pterosaurs have a pelt they are furry animals or hairy animals and then um whether the presence of these hairs, filaments, fibers, whatever, pigno fibers, whether they are, you know, shared uh, with, you know, the conditioning dinosaurs, as, as, you, as you've described, I think, yes, I think that the, the common ancestor, if you imagine the family tree, the cladogram, the pterosaur branch and the dinosaur branch, that common ancestor at the middle probably is a fuzzy little beast and pterosaurs and dinosaurs both inherit uh, the filaments uh, from the ancestor. Other people argue differently. They say that, you know, these structures have evolved differently. There's some pretty cool science that's been done on the biochemistry of the structures. And um, I don't know it well enough to be able to, you know, describe it in detail now, but I understand that the microstructure and biochemistry of pterosaur filaments and dinosaur filaments does appear homologous. It does appear to be like, yes, shared. And the people who, uh, you know, support that view, they say that therefore we should talk about, if we're happy talking about dinosaur feathers, then we should be calling these structures feathers in pterosaurs as well. Mm. So, yeah, there's multiple different points of view. My preference is, yes, they probably, yeah, do come from a, a shared state. They, yeah, the, the ancestor of both groups probably was a little fuzzy animal, a fuzzy little ornithodiron archosaur. <laughs> So I, I like, I'm excited with the idea that there's these feathers it, it does make things seem much stranger. And I, I like that too, that, uh, all these animals could look so different. I've seen constructions, uh, of, of the dinosaurs have, having quills, uh, proto feathers, and that we've all seen the pachyrhinosaurus where it's been reconstructed almost like a muskox, like, uh, there's who knows what it could have been, but, um, yeah, all kinds of structures become possible and, and, uh, really interesting, strange things. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of difficult still at this point to know when we've gone too far. <laughs> like, because uh, yeah, that there was sort of a meme fairly recently. Yeah, like depicting uh, various dinosaurs of co of polar environments as sort of shaggy coated. You know, as as you said, like like muskox and and such. And I don't know. I think that's still on the cards, uh, based for, for at least some animals. You know, we've got some fairly big ones like the Tyrannosauroid U. Tyrannus, which is, that's an animal that's like nearly 30 foot long. And that appears to be, you know, covered with a fairly dense coat of filaments. Uh, if that's the case for a theropod, and if we have evidence, as you've already said, for, for, for um, filaments in some Ornithischians, should we also be depicting some Ornithischians in a, a fuzzy pelt as well? And... Yeah, it's like you know, we we would we dearly hope, we pray for for more fossils, better better fossils that that you know confirm or refute this. Mm -hmm. But um, at the moment, it's still up for grabs, and it's it's exciting, you know, to those of us that have this knowledge, 
now it's kind of quite familiar, you know, to see quills and feathers on a wide range of dinosaurs. This, this is, this is like, yeah, this is, this is what we think. This is right. But for the vast majority of people seeing these depictions in art or film or TV, it's still new, still brand new. It's like, what dinosaurs have feathers? I mean, it's still like, whereas it's actually not new, you know, not only were feathered velociraptor type dinosaurs, you know, published in the 1990s, which is now a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you've been following the uh, dinosaur literature, dinosaurs uh, in, in art and museum displays, you know, this goes back even further than that. It's an idea that has been familiar within the community, certainly since the 1970s. That's interesting. And, uh, so, it's, yeah, it always surprises me that people are like, you hadn't heard of this before. It's like, <laughs> well, no, why, why would I have done it? I haven't been looking at dinosaur books. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it seems to be a matter of record uh, from when I when I listened to the, the Tetrapod Zoology podcast that uh, you attended your first screening of Jurassic Park in protest with a with a shirt on. <laughs> Is this a true story? Were you just goofing around or? <laughs> no, it's a true story. Yeah, it's, wow. a, it's a little bit. Yeah, I've. Uh... It's it's totally true. I had a T-shirt specially made for it. I I wrote to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that, so the, the t-shirts, <laughs> scaly protobirds, no thanks, <laughs> feathering the theropods, a matter of principle. And um, some people were like, yeah, right on, high five. And other people were like, you pretentious, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, some people are like, that is not the right way to uh, approach the movie. Yeah, obviously, you know, their, their excuse was, and it's a good one, mm-hmm. is that if they had gone with feathers it could have been an utter disaster. We all, we all know, if you know anything about Jurassic Park, anything about the history of modern cinema, we, we all know, you know what amazing innovations, amazing strides mm-hmm. made in the making of that film. And yeah, if, and it worked. It's obviously, they totally pulled it off, it totally worked. Whereas if, like, if they'd got something really wrong, if they'd given them feathers and it, and it was a look bad, mm-hmm. it's hard to believe that Steven Spielberg and his team could fail it's hard to believe they could but uh, yeah it's but yes i really did wear that t-shirt <laughs> that's good you were among the first to, to be questioning their uh <laughs> the their presentation of dinosaurs which is funny because as technology has developed and as the science has developed um their depictions of dinosaurs have not <laughs> continued to improve with the times with the that's neither here nor there really yeah <laughs> it's always I, been I a struggle talk about this yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't talk about this anymore because um, I I wrote an article for CNN when Jurassic World was brand new, and the argument was you guys really had the chance to give you know, in a sense, Jurassic World is a total reboot. Like mm. it's like you all know about Jurassic Park, that failed. We're starting everything from scratch. This is different. This is different. This is different. Well, surely that was your chance to say because we don't want to be associated with Jurassic Park, which is something that's even said in the movie, that was your excuse to be different. But no, they had decided they wanted to stick with that specific look Mm -hmm. uh, for their dinosaurs. And yeah, okay, fine. There's there's all all kinds of ways they can justify it, and they have tried to justify it, but um, yeah. Now that we have things like, and I want to keep plugging Prehistoric Planet, but now that we have things like Prehistoric Planet, it has been a course correction in terms of 
the chance to uh, inform the public on current thinking about uh, dinosaurs. But, um, but yeah, Jurassic World really wasn't prepared to do that. That's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right, Prehistoric Planet has been a, a wonderful opportunity to, to spend time showing the other side of the coin. And it came out, uh, the first season came out when uh, uh, Jurassic Park was again reappearing in theaters and things like that. And I think a lot of people who... The dinosaur fans were happier to, to perhaps find that than they were, uh, as far as I can tell, dinosaur fans uh, to see Dominion. <laughs> um, so spending time opining and thinking about how these animals all lived and worked together, where do you start when it comes to like envisioning these, these new worlds that you want to put uh, these, these animals in? Well, um, yeah, we start, you know, the starting point is always the fossil record. What do we actually know directly about these animals based on you know the context in which we find uh, their remains the sediments that you know the, the the environments they're preserved in what do their fossils show us about their social lives and reproductive behaviors and so on and even before you start bringing in layers of extrapolation and speculation and start comparing them to living animals it's obvious that dinosaurs there's a lot going on it's obvious this is a group of animals where you know so contrary to the stereotype of decades past these were not you know slow moving solitary boring animals the, the on on the exact opposite is true these are highly social animals we've got abundant evidence for them you know moving around in social groups whether that's predators hanging out in groups or like large groups of herbivores moving together uh, we, we've got we've got all that we've got evidence for like nesting colonies obviously in numerous different groups of dinosaurs and a thing that I'm, you know, really, really interested in about dinosaurs is how showy they are. I talk about this a lot. I've written about this a lot. Mm-hmm. They clearly are animals that are doing lots of signaling, lots of displaying. This is a normal part of their lives. It's in keeping with their living relatives. You know, like many of the features that are present in birds. Birds are phenomenally, you know, showy animals that use body language signals of all kinds. Uh, it's this is true also if you know enough about crocodilians crocodilians use loads of signals and so do lizards which are you know distant relatives but some of what they do does apply to the archosaurs and dinosaurs and their kin as well oh and i should also say as well that what we understand about their skulls and brains clearly their sensory abilities are really highly developed they're animals with an excellent sense of eyesight eyesight they've got you know like color vision their hearing's pretty good probably their vocal abilities are very well developed so yeah straight away we're talking about like a noisy visual flamboyant group of social animals that are often doing things in groups and are living in all kinds of different complex environments so straight away it's like there's almost too much to start there's there's so much to consider there in terms of yeah behavioral diversity and specific bits of behavior yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to know where to start. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, and I imagine the real challenge begins when you say, "Okay, I want to reconstruct a a brontosaurus," and but it's not going to be just in and of itself by itself in in the world. It's going to be part of the environment. It's surrounded by everything else that's part of its life, and uh, so yeah, you can't just take one element. You have to have the whole picture uh, and seeing how it all interacts. It's just so, what a challenge, but an interesting exercise. I bet you it's a, a ton of fun. <laughs> it, it is, it is. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we're, we're lucky for at least, you know, quite a few dinosaurs that we have got 
uh, near complete or complete skeletons and we know something of like how the bones actually fit together so your starting point you know we're we're at the point where most well-known dinosaurs we've got a complete uh, a vision of what the skeleton is like and from that we can infer the musculature which we do that based on the uh, you know the anatomy of where the bone scars are and the, the bony lumps and bumps and crests and all that stuff as well as what we see in living animals because musculature across tetrapods reptiles and amphibians birds and mammals is pretty conservative it's pretty you know muscles go in the same place no matter what where you are in that group of animals and then building on the actual external look of the animals now that's you know again that is a real challenge but that's something where we've got a good amount of relevant fossil information we do have patches of skin uh, sometimes we've got traces of musculature as well and we also know that many of these animals were highly pneumatic so they've got air sacs distributed you know throughout the skeleton and also throughout the the body cavity as well adding all this um as i've said in a few you know we we, uh, we said this in quite a few prehistoric planet um interviews it's like you've got this range in terms of like how conservative you are versus how like extreme or radical you want to be and it's like you've got some leeway <laughs> in terms of uh like okay you can see that sauropod model behind me do you stick with a sauropod that's kind of just like you know standard the the fleshy outline the skin outline matches what you would predict from the skeleton or do you start to go over the top in terms of like like wattles and dewlaps and inflatable sacks uh on the body a lot of things that there isn't necessarily evidence for but they're still plausible based on the diversity of things that we see in in some of their living relatives and we mostly prefer to stay towards the conservative end and mm -hmm. you know by and large reconstructions do but um yeah you'll have seen these more extreme reconstructions where people do do go over the top and maybe I'm wrong in saying over the top. We, you know, they are more speculative. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, what if it had giant soft tissue, this and that, you know, spines, G-laps, you know, mm -hmm. uh, th things that aren't preserved in, in fossils. And then there's, and that's not to mention color as well. There's, there's obviously so much possibility in terms of color. So we've discovered in the, you know, the past few years that we do have microscopic traces of um, pigmentation preserved in some uh, the skin and the feathers um, of at least some uh, fossil dinosaurs and, and other animals too. It's been documented for pterosaurs and marine reptiles also. But you're generally talking about like a single individual for a species. There's still, yeah. we've still <laughs> just got the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we actually know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the final thing to say on this, you know, so many of the decisions that we make in terms of bringing the animals to life. It is based on the the rough kind of rules that exist in the living world. So, for, for example, a few broad brush things like animals that live in open environments tend to be, tend to be a massive generalization, they tend to be sort of like plainer or paler than those that live in deep forest. And big animals tend to be plainer or paler than smaller ones. A couple of those genera uh, generalizations uh, are, are applied uh, as well and I think that that basically helps us build a kind of grounded realistic look mm -hmm. for any extinct animal whether it's a dinosaur or yeah yeah they definitely look but there's a lot to consider yeah yeah they're really cool they're really well put together but uh you won't that won't be the first time you heard that 
Uh, <laughs> one of the the other things that uh, when you're not doing pterosaurs and and podcasting is uh, is uh, and, and it's fun because it's really really fun to listen to you talk about it on the show is uh, cryptozoology and uh, Jurassic Park borrows some of that idea without expressly saying cryptozoology, but they have um, um, a rediscovery uh, when they come across the Procomsignathus remains they they feel like maybe this is an animal that just hasn't been seen in a long time, uh, as opposed to a clone dinosaur. And then they bring up a couple animals as an example. They have um, an Australian mountain pygmy possum and a 10,000-year-old fruit bat from New Guinea, and then the coelacanth. These are all examples of animals that were believed to be only in the fossil record, but proved to be rediscoveries. And then that lends credence that perhaps a procomsignathus could exist, although they do challenge the question. It's from the late Triassic. That's a lot longer ago than uh, than 10,000 years. But um, it got me to wondering, out there, in the, the cryptozoologist hunters, what what critters might be out there that people believe are out there that could also be a dinosaur? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, for, for, we should say, first of all, excluding birds, obviously birds birds being dinosaurs, so okay. non-bird dinosaurs. Yeah, now um, there's a good number of books that have been uh, written on which, like, a le- uh, back up a little bit. So the cryptozoology is basically the collection of anecdotes, stories, folklore, and not stopping with the idea that it's just anecdotes, folklore. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, we all of us live in parts of the world where people, like, have anecdotes, folklore about an animal, an animal-type thing that almost certainly doesn't exist. You know, so, like, I'm in England, and right here, there's stories about, you know, trolls and wolf-like monsters you know werewolves and man beasts they almost certainly don't don't relate to like you know real animals they are they're they're invented folklore cryptozoology says that that this isn't just an invented folklore this is actually people describing real live undiscovered animals and the the literature on this in it covers like hundreds of different hundreds of different things from folklore from anecdote the uh, guy who basically sort of like formalized cryptozoology, Bernard Hooverman, so you probably heard me talk about him quite a lot, he published this list in 1986. I think it's 148 cryptids, as they're known, yeah, sort of the creatures that are supposed to be targets of cryptozoology. And they include absolutely everything that you could imagine <laughs> in terms of folkloric creatures. And in his list, and I think we should regard it as sort of like the definitive list for cryptozoologists, because uh, Hoovermans was sort of like the founder of the, the the field. In that list, there's about ten animals that he is thinking are non-bird dinosaurs. Most famously, they include this assortment of giant kind of pseudo reptile creatures from the Congolese swamps, from countries like Democratic Republic of Congo, and most famously, they include the Makila mabembe, which is Described so I'm 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 going with Hoovermans descriptions of these creatures. So Hoovermans Mabembe is a living sauropod, and it's a 1950s style swamp dwelling sauropod, like like you see in the old paintings, like Zdenek Burian and you know Charles Knight beforehand. There's supposed to be a ceratopsian like di- like dinosaur type creature from the Congo called the Milanatuka. Okay. <laughs> and there's there's one with planks on its back. Uh, which is called Mbilu Mbilu Mbilu, which is supposed to be like a living 
Stegosaur. A okay. living Stegosaur. There's also supposed to be living pterosaurs, conglomato in the region. And Hooverman mentions other animals from, from elsewhere uh, in the world. Uh, he's sort of, he's like, this sounds a bit like a dinosaur, according to his very outdated view of dinosaurs. Like, mm-hmm. there's a, I forget whereabouts in the States it is, there's an animal from, from somewhere in the US that he regards as like possibly like a living hadrosaur. Oh, and really? again, it's an old-fashioned, sort of like swamp-dwelling tail dragon, you know, old, old-school view of of uh, of these animals. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a list of them, a list of these uh, alleged prehistoric survivors. There, there's so much to say about them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I deliberately stopped talking there because, <laughs> like, yeah, it's where where do these ideas actually come from? Because what the among the people like Bernard Hoobermans and the other cryptozoologists, their writings always make it sound like they spoke to people in these relevant parts of the world, and those people described this animal, and it's an animal, and this animal can only be a sauropod. Mm-hmm. But what they don't, like, what Hoobermans and the others don't make clear is that when these stories were collected from people in whatever place, you know, the Congo or Mississippi or wherever it is, it's a it's a legend it's like it's a kind of folkloric belief it's this idea that there's this animal so like if you look at we don't really know much or i'm going to stick with the, the congolese examples because that's the most famous we don't know much about the the history of the legends in that part of the world we don't we don't even know what language makila mabembe comes from is that right yeah so you here uh, and i'm and i'm talking about literature going back to you know, mid 1950s ish that um those descriptions will be you know i spoke to this man in the congo and he said there was this big water monster and it's got a long neck and it comes up onto the bank and it eats you know leaves of a certain tree and it, and it ducks under the water and it makes a very loud noise and it leaves three-toed footprints that will sort of be the description of it for hoovermans and his you know associates in cryptozoology they're like ha sauropod dinosaur can only be a sauropod dinosaur which is putting a very (laughs) sort of biased modern spin on it whereas wait a minute it's like there's without going into this too deeply there's a whole bunch of other things that you need to consider and think about and it's like are you sure people aren't combining stories about like giant turtles and snakes and combining them Mm -hmm. with the behavior of i don't know elephants whatever you know there's there's a whole there's a whole mess to it and the the final thing i'll say on this is that a lot of the writings that are collected on this are actually collected in the early 1900s by european explorers who are basically going to places like the Congo and then coming back to uh, you know, Europe or the USA and saying what a, what a dangerous time they had and how heroic they are for surviving it. And their whole narrative is basically about them. It's the, it's the colonialist uh, narrative as well. Like, I went to this dark <laughs> part of the world, which hasn't changed since prehistoric times, where you know spear-wielding natives were threatening to like you know eat me and stuff. And within that narrative within that dialogue mm. it becomes much more interesting if oh and there's prehistoric monsters there yes. as well there's so a... I, I think yeah we have to keep that in mind we have to like you know look at it quite quite skeptically mm-hmm. yeah that lost yeah, world but... hypothesis yeah 
exactly right. Yeah. So as far as you know, should a cryptocurrency brand itself under the name of a cryptid animal? Do you think that would be a better idea? I'd rather lose all my money to a chupacabra than to, <laughs> to Dogecoin or something like that. Dogecoin. <laughs> Dogecoin. So yeah, the the, the, um, the existence of cryptocurrency has, has been nothing but a the bane of cryptozoology because now when you say... I like crypto or I'm into cryptids. People are like, oh yeah, Dogecoin or, or I know nothing about cryptocurrency whatsoever. So I can't pretend to even know the names of the different Bitcoin. Let's go with Bitcoin. It's like, Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm, I'm in, yeah, I'm a crypto fan. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've invested X thousand dollars in Bitcoin as well. And it's like, you know, searches online are now ruined because crypto is now used for cryptocurrency. And, you know, as as someone with environmental concerns, I cannot be cool with. I'm not happy at all with the existence of cryptocurrencies, uh, from what limited things I understand about it. So I don't know if a crypto if a cryptocurrency is to be named after a cryptid. I'm not a fan. Squatch <laughs> coin. Squatch coin. That's what we want. Squatch coin. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to I have to accept that uh, you are a genuine Star Wars fan and you don't enjoy Star Wars, ironically. I am a genuine Star Wars okay. fan. I really am. So yeah. one of your latest episodes of the show, you got to have uh, special guest John Favreau come on and uh, and join you guys about prehistoric planet. Um, but of course, he's also uh, super famous for for being part of uh, other Disney products, including The Mandalorian and things like that. Um, and I think he was he was being very forthcoming about uh, some of the influence that the the creature designs that went into prehistoric planet were influencing his perspective on yeah. creative design for other things from your impression what was what were some of his takeaways or is it exciting for you to think that maybe some element some corner of star wars might be influenced by uh the things that you say because there's a lot of star wars fans that do wish this <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i okay so i obviously i can't tell you what i know but i know that there's star wars creatures that have yet to be revealed that are Fairly directly inspired by, mm -hmm. by what John learned uh, while working on uh, Prehistoric Planet, um, and yeah, that that's an honour, and it, it's it's an honour. It's like that's great. If I see something, can I recognise that it comes from you know his his discussion with me and the other members of the Prehistoric Planet team? I'm like, hey, that that's great. That's I'm I'm really happy. I'm also it's also inevitable. There's going to be this kind of crossover because of course Star Wars has the Star Wars universe has always. Kind of been inspired by mm -hmm. uh, you know like real real creatures there, there's animals that are based on certain uh fossil mammals and dinosaurs and the thing i really want to know actually is whether ralph macquarie's original tauntaun illustrations were inspired by feathery dinosaurs okay uh, because um his the initial the you know tauntauns are repto mammals they're kind of these animals that yeah they're sort of like bit reptilian they're meant to be like furry reptiles his initial illustrations, it's kind of more like a furry bipedal, well, it's kind of like a theropod, a fuzzy mm -hmm. theropod. And I've just always wondered, were you aware of, had you seen Robert Backer's Scientific American article on, because um, that's published in the late late 70s, it would have been mm -hmm. would have been known that the, before while they were preparing to make The Empire Strikes Back. So, uh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe one day I'll ask. Scientific but, um, American used yeah, to be the original internet, wasn't it? That's where you went for <laughs> crazy ideas. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I do pay attention to the, you know, the, the creatures of, of Star Wars. I've, I've written about them uh, quite a bit. I think there's there, there's quite a bit of inconsistency in terms of the look of the creatures in 
the new films, mm-hmm. um, and to a degree, some of the creatures that are in Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian and so on also don't don't really feel like proper Star Wars animals. Mm. But yeah, I I can't. I I, I want to say a lot more because I, okay, I do. Yeah, I, I think like everybody that's been involved in creature design and the reconstruction of prehistoric animals. Generally, we 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 often you know we're often connected to an interest in. Okay, whether Star Wars is sci-fi or not is actually, you know, might not be sci-fi mm. for technical reasons. But we're we're interested in that world in fantasy and sci-fi and, and such. And therefore, you know, we really hope that we'll have some uh, you know, input or some involvement in uh, the design of of some of those creatures mm-hmm. and uh, So yeah, how long have you cool. how long have you been collaborating with John Favreau? Well, Prehistoric Planet kind of really got off the ground in 2018. Okay. And, wow, you know, been working on it since since 2017. So so since since about then. So some of our, like, I'm still at this point not allowed to share, Fair. like, so much stuff <laughs> that happened in connection with Prehistoric Planet. But, um, but yeah, uh, early meetings and stuff were held, yeah, way back. Way back pre-COVID, you know, in the... <laughs> <laughs> the late 2010s so, so was it do you feel it was important did you did you consider making a t-shirt that said that the crate dragon should have had feathers <laughs> i have to behave <laughs> my best best behavior in any of those meetings so uh no no i no i, I try to dress smart for those sorts of meetings <laughs> that's a good idea though yeah yeah well this has been really cool I'll, thank you so much for all of your time before you sign off, did you uh, do you want to share where people can follow you? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, if you uh, are interested in seeing uh, what I write about and uh, various things I've been involved in, go to Tetrapod Zoology, which is tetzoo.com. We have uh, a podcast there as well, the Tetrapod Zoology podcast, and I write about all manner of things that interest me in the world of uh, zoology, li- like living animals and extinct ones. And I'm s- despite... Elon Musk's best effort. I'm I'm still quite active on Twitter, at um, at bounty bounty hunters. We don't need that scum. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> at it <Zoo. laughs> Well, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for uh, for joining in. Um, maybe you get a baryonyx into a, into a prehistoric planet, but you'd have to you'd have to wiggle a lot of things around. Maybe a baryonyx skeleton could be in. <laughs> fossilized in a in a Lake Cretaceous <laughs> scene. Uh, maybe that is. I would like to say more on that kind of thing, but uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. Mm. yeah. You always leave people wondering what's in the box. That's a, that's a perfect answer. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, really great having you on. I appreciate it very much. It was great talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. All right. A great big thank you to Darren Nash for for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I, I was looking forward to that. All right, this week's text is Under Control, spanning from pages 369 to 379. In a synopsis, things are back under control. The computer is functioning properly. The visitor center and safari lodge are secure. There aren't any dinosaurs in the northern sector. 
and the authorities are on their way. Even the air conditioning is working again, and a medic is coming for Dr. Malcolm. The carnage has been measured. Out of 24 people on the island, 8 were dead and 6 were missing on page 269. The National Guard is on its way, and the Costa Rican Guard is surely speaking with Washington, D.C. to discuss what these Americans are doing out on Isla Nublar. This international conversation may be slowing down the medical response, the novel suggests on page 369. Grant recruits Muldoon, Sattler, and Gennaro to investigate the velociraptor nests to inspect them and estimate how many animals have been born in Jurassic Park. Before they go, they discover a secret bunker at the maintenance shed, equipping them with nerve gas for the defense against the raptors. And they travel to the southern fields and follow a juvenile velociraptor to, their, to its nest. Characters. Tim Murphy. Tim has apparently gotten quite good with the computer and is loading up interesting information on page 370, including the animal count. He works the computer to help locate the different nesting sites around the island on 373, and he also finds an unmarked storage room. It might have weapons. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro has returned to form, asking questions. After seeing the animal count, he asks why the animal count is showing fewer animals on page 370. Meaning what? He also asks. He doesn't think that the animals were ever meant to mingle with each other on page 371, and as Muldoon introduces the idea that the Costa Ricans will destroy the island, Gennaro agrees wholeheartedly, adding, I hope they do. This island is too dangerous. Every animal on this island must be destroyed. And the sooner the better. Gennaro doesn't understand why Grant needs to go count the eggs if the Costa Ricans are just going to blow everything up anyhow on 373. He resists any idea other than letting the Costa Ricans blow the place up until Grant slams him up against a wall and yells in his face. Grant sums up Gennaro's responsibility and role in the catastrophe that's occurred at Jurassic Park. Quote, You sold investors on an undertaking you didn't fully understand. You were part owner of a business you failed to supervise. You did not check the activities of a man whom you knew from experience to be a liar. And you permitted that man to screw around with the most dangerous technology in human history. I'd say you shirk your responsibility on 373. And here's the crazy part. Gennaro didn't even know that Grant was planning on investigating the nests. He was just resistant to do anything. But he's certainly resistant to going back out into the park and climbing into a velociraptor nest. Later, Gennaro is flabbergasted that amphibian DNA somehow permitted dinosaurs to breed in Jurassic Park, but accepts the explanation, quote, until we have a better explanation, as Grant says. Here, this is Crichton explaining why, though as I've argued earlier, I'd like to think that it's because all of Jurassic Park's systems of control were failures, not necessarily because of amphibian DNA. I make that argument more fully on uh, episode 49, Aviary, where we go over the section control as a hoax. Gennaro is curious, likely also very scared, about visiting the raptor nest and asks Grant about it. On page 375, he's surprised that Grant hasn't at least some idea of what to expect. Grant spooks him a bit by relating the dangerous details about American alligators and their young, and Gennaro responds, quote, so much for the damned experts on 376. He's terrified as they enter the southern fields and approach the raptor nest. He can't understand why Sattler and Grant seem so chill about it all. Sattler says that investigating a carnivore's infant-rearing behavior is something Grant has thought about for his entire life on 377. Gennaro hears this and reflects upon his own life and wonders if he can relate. Gennaro wonders how smart the velociraptors might be, to which Sattler and Grant suggest that they may be as smart as a gray parrot. <laughs> Gennaro grumbles bitterly, but I've never heard of anybody getting killed by a parrot on 377. Then they find the nest, and Gennaro is defiant that they should go down into it on 378. Gennaro suggests they drop the nerve gas down and just count the corpses afterwards, but Grant denies him on 379. He argues with going down the hole, but they're going to make him go down this hole. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant is unsurprised to see that 
There are fewer dinosaurs in the park since the blackout on page 370. Now that the animals are mingling in the park, he sees that they are reaching a, quote, true Jurassic equilibrium. He says the raptor's hunting behavior doesn't match what he'd expected, not necessarily on 371. When Muldoon observes that now would be a good time to investigate the raptor nests while all the adults are, quote, out right now on 371, Grant doesn't at first recognize what he's saying. But Muldoon clarifies and agrees, yes, he'd like to go find the raptor nest. To Grant, just destroying the animals isn't good enough. They have to find out how many have been born and then estimate if they think any have escaped the island. This is their duty. Gennaro doesn't want to count the eggs, believing it's good enough to just blow everything up on 373. In the moment of Gennaro's rebuttal, Grant recalls the ache in his back from where the raptor had slashed him, and then the sight of finding Gennaro quivering in the truck in the sub-basement of the generator shed, hiding from the compies. He loses his temper and slams Gennaro up against the wall, calls him a little bastard, says he has some responsibility in the events that have happened here at the Jurassic Park, and it's time to start living up to it. Just blowing the island up isn't cutting it. Grant says he's, quote, shirked your responsibilities all along from the very beginning on page 373. Grant gives Gennaro a stern talking to and then sets to work finding the nests. For weapons, they only have shock prods and some nerve gas. He has to remind Gennaro of his plan, which was first introduced way back in the chapter Breeding Sites on page 168. So upon reviewing episode 33, Breeding Sites, recall there are believed to be two Procomsignathus nests, two Velociraptor nests, one Othnelia nest, one Myasaura nest, and one Hypsilophodon nest throughout the island, uh, totaling seven nesting sites. And I guess Grant plans on inspecting all of these, but especially the raptor nests. These are the most dangerous animals, and so they must be most responsible for understanding them. They discover a weapons cache filled with nerve gas, grenades, so they equip those and tote them along and tote along some gas masks on their way to the southern fields. Grant says Muldoon's query about amphibian DNA and why it may answer how the dinosaurs are breeding at Jurassic Park on 375, and it reveals that West African frogs are particularly well documented for gender transition. Recall in episode 35, Breeding Sites, we covered the news story, Protogynous Sex Change in the Reed Frog, Hyperolius Virid Flavus, which as far as I can recall, is uh, is the study that Grant is referring to. Upon Clarence's release, Grant holds the receiver and headphones tracking the animal back to its nest. He tells Gennaro that they don't really know anything about the, what a Velociraptor's nest is going to look like. He relates a tale of how dangerous an American alligator nest could be, perhaps just to spook Gennaro. I think he's toying with Gennaro a little bit here, because then he also freely admits after spooking him that they could do any sort of thing. Nobody knows. Grant appears very cool walking in the southern fields in his cowboy boots, jeans, and Hawaiian shirt. On page 376, he seems incredibly chill about everything entering the raptor nest on 377. Grant seems very calm, and Sattler reminds Gennaro that investigating a theropod nest is something he's wondered about for his entire career. Recall back on page 43, it's said that Ellie knows that one of Grant's dreams is to study infant-rearing behavior in carnivores. This is Grant's dream, and it's about to come true. They find the nest, and Grant lowers a microphone and video camera to investigate the subterranean chamber on 378, and they aren't able to view the nest with this equipment. So they get the shock prods and the flashlights out, put on their gas masks, convince Gennaro this must be done, and he climbs down the hole on 379. He reports back up in an awestruck voice that everything is fine. Ellie Sattler. Sattler asks Grant if the raptor behavior he's observing matches his expectations on 371. She supports Grant in his egg quest and works with Tim on the computer to do it to identify where the nests are on 373. Ellie's supposition is confirmed that the nest is in the southern volcanic fields on 376. Gennaro asks her why she and Grant seemed so calm when faced with entering the raptor nest, and she says, this is Grant's dream coming true. He's thought about this for his whole life on 377. At the nest hole, Sattler grabs a shock prod, her flashlight, but I don't think she puts her gas mask on, and heads down the hole on 379. 
They can't gas the animals first because a nervous reaction for the gas would destroy the nests and they wouldn't be able to get a reliable count. Grant says he's not thrilled about bodily entering the nest, but it's their duty, I guess. She watches Grant climb down the hole and radios him to see if everything's okay. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon notices that, quote, all the adult raptors appear, quote, out right now on 371 and lets Grant know. This indicates that Muldoon knows that Grant wants to count the eggshells at the nests, and while the adults are all out, that's the best time to be at a velociraptor nest. <laughs> Muldoon clarifies, we've got about one hour of good daylight left if you want to find that raptor nest. He's also confident that when the Costa Ricans come, they're going to destroy the island right away, bombing it from the air on 371. Grant sends Muldoon out to find any armaments he can to help them defend themselves when they're in the raptor nest on 373. Upon discovering a secret storage room at the maintenance shed, Muldoon damns John Arnold for not saying something, but recall Arnold didn't access this secret room when he came earlier, and therefore likely didn't know about it on 373. In the secret room, Muldoon identifies the mysterious small dark spheres as Moro-12, an inhalation nerve gas, and the cubes are the grenade boxes, I guess, on 374. When Muldoon observes Clarence, the juvenile velociraptor changing color, he decides this animal must be different, which leads him to ask Grant, what was it about amphibian DNA that he felt held the answers for why the animals are breeding? Muldoon drives the jeep on their mission to the raptor nest on 375. John Hammond. Hammond is believed to know about the secret room, and it's said that he's back at the lodge on 373. John Arnold, it's said that he likely didn't know about the secret weapons storage at the maintenance shed that they'll discover on 373 as well. Lex Murphy. Lex is playing with Clarence, the tranquilized juvenile velociraptor in the underground parking garage of the visitor center on 374. She's petting it. Her rapport with Clarence gives her the ability to put the beeping radio collar on him. And Lex releases Clarence, who escapes into the foliage on 374. Clarence. This is the tranquilized male, juvenile... Velociraptor that Grant shot in the tunnel earlier. It apparently likes Lex and allows her to pet him on 374. Muldoon puts a leather radio collar on him. He turns a brighter green when Lex tightens the collar and then relaxed and turned a paler green afterwards, showing that he's a bit of a chameleon. The other raptors can't change color. Muldoon decides this one must be different. There's some question as to whether the little Velociraptor they follow into the southern fields is Clarence or not, but when it disappears abruptly, the beeping stops too, suggesting that the transmitter was broadcasting from Clarence's collar right up until the creature in front of them disappeared. Presumably, the radio caller's signal is blocked and thus discontinues on 378. If this is Clarence, then his playful nature and warmth towards humanity continues, aiding Grant on his egg-counting mission. Hypsilophodons. On a monitor, Grant can see a Hypsilophodon leap into the air as a pack of Velociraptors approach it from the west on page 370. The Velociraptors. A pack of these can be seen entering the Hypsilophodon highlands from the west on 370. Another pack of Velociraptors attacks a big hadrosaur. One jumps on its back, biting into the long neck while the others circle it, nipping at its legs and leaping up to slash its belly with the powerful claws. It takes mere minutes for six raptors to topple the hadrosaur on 371. The intelligence of the velociraptors is equated to the mental capacity of chimpanzees, gorillas, and human beings with the ability to make and execute plans. Then, compared to the emotional development of a great parrot, equated to a three-year-old child, which, with the ability to reason symbolically on page 377. Hadrosaurs. One of these is shown on a monitor, and it is said to weigh four tons, and a pack of raptors attack it as it turns to flee. 
Tyrannosaurus. The juvenile is sort of playing with a stegosaurus on page 371 on one of the monitors, warily circling it, bemused and occasionally lunging forward to nip ineffectually at the spikes. Stegosaurus. Uh, only one stegosaur is being observed by the monitors, and that one is swinging its tail at the juvenile tyrannosaur in the south, on page 371. Triceratops. These are said to be in the western quadrant, on page 371, and I guess even though they've been separated into smaller groups, they somehow found themselves all together again, and now that they're in a group larger than five, they're killing each other. They're fighting, charging, and locking horns of one animal already lays wounded and dying. We have uh, lots of localities in this chapter as well. Uh, the control room is air-conditioned and the computers are now functioning properly, we're told, on 369. Visitor Center, this is also secured from escaped dinosaurs. The Safari Lodge is now secure from escaped dinosaurs. Isla Nublar, uh, the northern perimeter, quote, seemed to be clear of dinosaurs, is added, reaffirming that the northern section of the island was fenced and gated from the rest of the animals in the park. The velociraptor nests are located in the southern volcanic fields, likely because they like the warmth. Sattler identifies a waterworks that is a, quote, massive concrete waterworks used to, quote, control flooding in the southern flatlands, and it's a big underground area on page 373. The southern fields, these are flat. There's a beach down here, and apparently are, these are prone to flooding, so they require massive concrete waterworks. They smell of sulfur from the volcanic plumes of smoke, and the velociraptor nests are here too. The ground is hot, and mud bubbles and spits up from the ground in some places on 376. The plumes of smoke are, quote, shoulder high, it says. It's considered a, quote, stinking and hellish place with uh, the velociraptor somewhere around on 377. These are fairly vast, and the team travels to where the volcanic fields are behind them, and the sound of the surf of the shore can be heard. Uh, so I guess that makes the nests closer to the beach. The A and B. In one of the aft holds, three young raptors were found scampering around and destroyed, we're told on 370. The maintenance building's secret room. Behind the maintenance building, this is the generator shed, right? This building has been called a bunch of things, including a power plant, but I think this is the same facility. There's a locked steel door that rolls up, revealing a set of stairs descending into the ground on 373. There are rows of plastic containers filled with gas masks on 374 hanging on the wall. Also, several heavy glass cubes two feet high with steel caps filled with small dark spheres. The raptor nest. The hole entering the raptor nest is about two feet in diameter and found among a group of rocks on page 377, nearer the shore, past the volcanic fields. It's filled with squeaking sounds and a lower trumpeting sound coming from many animals. All right, we have allusions and references here. Uh, Moro 12. Grant earlier had a dart gun weaponized with Moro 709 which was a tranquilizer dart. He brandished it at the Tyrannosaur to no effect, but also struck the juvenile Velociraptor behind the waterfall, too. Muldoon and Gennaro fired the Moro 709 at the Tyrannosaur earlier in the novel as well, which was a large enough dose that she went to sleep. That was called, quote, Standard Animal Trank by Muldoon at that time. So this is a Moro series of weapons where lower gauge is sleepy and higher gauge is nerve gas. The nesting behavior of alligators and crocodiles. Grant alludes to extant animal species and their nesting habits as an example of what science doesn't understand, but then relates how much is known about alligator nesting habits. In American alligators, only the female guards the nest, awaiting the time for hatching. The male, however, spent lots of time and effort in mating, but is long gone by the time the nest is built on 376. The nests are cone-shaped, three feet high, and are guarded ferociously. The mother helps break open the eggs and nudge the babies to the water, sometimes carrying them in her mouth. And the infants make a, quote, distinctive distress cry that brings on a full-fledged violent attack, not a threat display. 
a full-on attack from any adult who hears it. This illusion suggests that the Velociraptor Nest could be a very dangerous place, and they may find themselves the subject of a full-fledged, violent attack by all adults. Or not. <laughs> they could also behave much more like any variety of birds, too. But the tension is built through this analogy. We don't know what to expect, but we fear it could be very dangerous. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. We've got a few more episodes before we'll get into my final thoughts on what the role on what role Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland plays in Jurassic Park, but we get one more little allusion to this story in the chapter, uh, in this chapter. But it's really, it's only really noticeable if it's viewed in association with a moment that's coming up in the chapter descent. But for now, we have a juvenile velociraptor that looks at Grant and Sattler through veils of steam and it scampers away on 377. And Ellie asks if it's leading us on. Then later, quote, it really did seem to be leading them on. This is the follow the white rabbit trope. And this allegory or illusion will be strengthened as we go forward, but the raptor is appearing playful, so much so that Sadly recalls how the raptor had appeared playful when she was, quote, distracting them at the fence in the chapter return. In Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Alice follows the white rabbit down a large rabbit hole under the hedge, thus leading her on her adventures in Wonderland. The white rabbit has since become a trope of MacGuffin-esque quality, which drives people forward through the plot of a story. In this case, the juvenile velociraptor is literally going to lead Grant, Sattler, and Gennaro down a large velociraptor hole into who knows what adventures may follow. The... They follow their little raptor across the southern fields, leaving the volcanic fields behind them, nearing the beach. When they reach the hole, it is said to be, quote, like a rabbit hole on 378. So all those illusions, I think, are being made very clearly. Quote, the, intellig uh, the intelligence of modern animals. The velociraptors are considered very smart, and Ellie considers from her interactions with the velociraptors so far that they may have the mental capacity to invent and execute plans, which is believed to be only known in chimpanzees, gorillas, and human beings, on 377. Grant argues that the gray parrot has as much symbolic intelligence as a chimpanzee, and perhaps equal to the emotional intelligence of a three-year-old child. All right, let's get into our stylistic techniques. Uh, Crichton uses italics, generally to show people emphasizing things. Now, uh, quote, now it says that there are fewer animals with fewer in italics. Uh, this emphasis shows that Gennaro can't understand why the system is showing them uh, different information than it was previously when the animal count was exceeding their queries. The, quote, the raptor nest, with raptor nest in italics, coughs Gennaro, wondering if he's understanding what the team is planning to do on 373. He can't imagine going out and seeing raptors again. I've dug up fossil nests. I've dug up fossil dinosaur nests with fossil in italics, stresses Grant, but he admits that interpreting fossils requires far too much guesswork to infer with any degree of certainty what an actual raptor nest will be like on 375. It was actually hot, with hot in italics, on 376, thinks Gen Gennaro, who's expressing his surprise with the southern fields. This is not only italicized, but it's repetition but it's a repetition of the sentence before it, too, which said, the ground was hot just before. I think these italics and the repetition are to really reinforce a torturous damned feeling that Gennaro has with regards to this egg-counting mission in the raptor nest. Quote, but you can't see anything with C italicized. On 378, stresses Gennaro, showing that he's afraid of the dark and certainly worried about being able to see where they're going if they went into the nest. Colon. It looked more and more as if Ellie had been correct. Colon. The nest was in the southern volcanic fields on page 376, and here the colon introduces a restatement or explanation. You have to realize, colon, we don't know all the details about the nesting behavior of living reptiles, like crocodiles and alligators, on 376. And here the colon introduces a formal statement. And then they heard faintly, colon, quote, I'm here, 
on 379. The sentence is presented almost as a noise coming from the walkie-talkie, and that's kind of neat. Um, semicolons. Quote, it was afternoon, semicolon. The sun was falling on 369. And here the semicolon relates two ideas in a single sentence. It's interesting that Creighton has used this sentence structure constantly throughout the novel. He states a fact or an observation and then adds a little detail afterward. But he doesn't write it as a sentence, but instead in these conjoined clauses. It's kind of fun. Uh, he could very easily rewrite this as the sun was falling in the afternoon sky, but instead it was afternoon, semicolon, the sun was falling. That's interesting. Then Crichton, then as Crichton moves on from what what's happened and summarizes what's taken place over the past four hours, he employs the semicolon to make lengthy, fast-moving sentences that really kind of gloss over the narrative. He's just kind of speeding through this part. Quote, But over the telephone, the Costa Rican guard had been distinctly cautious. Semicolon. Undoubtedly, calls would go back and forth between San Jose and Washington before help was finally sent to the island on 369. Here we get a statement, phone calls have been made, and then the quality of those conversations is commented on by the conjoined clause. Uh, that help may not come right away because of the international nature of the problem. And now it was growing late in the day, semicolon. If the helicopters did not arrive soon, they would have to wait until morning on 369. This is similar to the previous statement. The first half states what's going on. The second clause further informs what that implies. This is almost like another countdown here. Uh, the ship was returning, semicolon. The crew had discovered three young raptors scampering about in one of the aft holds and had killed the animals on 370. Quote, on Isla Nublar, the immediate danger appeared to have passed, semicolon. Everyone was in either the visitor center or the lodge on 370. And this is the very next sentence. And it also could easily have been two sentences. So these semicolons are, give a feeling that the narrative is flowing in a lengthy and speedy fashion. It's kind of like just wrapping up loose ends here. Rhetorical questions. Now, shall we find the nest on 374? Offers Grant. And this is sort of a segue to move the plot along. Mechanically, it's used well by Crane. M dashes, quote, populations reaching equilibrium, M dash, a true Jurassic equilibrium on 370. Here, the M dash serves as a bit of a semicolon and also a comma, sort of, in a way. It's, it's just a little pause in Grant's dialogue. The hell? M dash, on page 373. Is Gennaro trying to get a word in against Grant, but he's interrupted. And it works as parentheses as well. Quote, young alligators make a distinctive distress cry, and it brings any adult who hears it, M dash, parent or not, M dash to their assistance with a full-fledged violent attack on 376. We have exclamations. Go on, shoot! Go home! With exclamations on that. Insists Lex. Uh, she only briefly appears in this chapter, but when she does, she's exclaiming things as usual. Literary techniques. We have metaphors. The sun was falling on 369. This is a bit of a cliche rather than a metaphor, but it suggests that the sky is descending from the heavens and will fall below the horizon, whereas it's just a common phrase because it's the earth spinning relative to the position of the sun as the planetary surface turns away from the sun's rays in the natural course of a rotation of the planet. But falling also suggests that it's happening quickly, so they should take action while they still can. Similes. Uh, it's like being in a room full of giant pepper mills, he thought, on 374. This is an interesting simile that lets Crichton help us envision what we're looking at. Now, what do these giant pepper mills also look like? Heavy glass cubes with steel caps filled with small dark spheres inside. I guess the small dark spheres could look like peppercorns, but like heavy glass cubes with steel caps does not describe a pepper mill. A pepper mill is tall and slender, not heavy and cubic. I think this simile is a fail. 
quote, he felt as if he were walking through hell on 376. Feels Gennaro standing among the shoulder-high plumes of sulfurous smoke, bubbling mud, and hot earth in the southern fields. And I like this simile. It feels good. It also adds to this idea that he's, you know, Gennaro's been damned, and this mission is torture for him. Um, we can look at the dialogue a little bit. Grant's forceful tone with Gennaro strongly makes the case that Gennaro has some responsibility to take in figuring out if dinosaurs have escaped from the island or not. So Grant insists that Gennaro join them on this egg-counting mission, beginning with the Velociraptor nest. And Gennaro comes along, but at the end, when it comes to time to finally go down the hole, the conflict is written well through the dialogue, with lots of neat stylistic techniques employed on 379. Uh, there were rhetorical questions from Gennaro, trying to be persuasive. Let's drop the nerve gas on him before we head down. What about it? What do you say? On 378, Grant denies him. Have you ever seen something die of poison gas? No. Ellipsis. It generally causes convulsions. Bad convulsions. Well, I'm sorry if it's unpleasant, but M-dash. He's interrupted again. The convulsions will ruin our count. We can't use the gas. But M-dash interrupted again. You made these animals, Mr. Gennaro. I didn't. Italics in the I, intoning some defiance. Your money, your efforts, your help created them. They're your creation. You can't kill them because you feel a little nervous now. I'm not a little nervous now. I'm scared shit. M-dash interrupted again. Follow me. M-dash's ellipses, italics, some humor all put to, to good use through this dialogue. And without lax, there are no exclamation marks. Uh, dinosaurs, uh, we get... A new tally for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, and perhaps we can do a status update. There were, at first, two Tyrannosaurs, and, uh, but now only one is being tallied. There were 21 Myosaurs, but then the count showed that there were 22, uh, but now there are only 20, so they lost two of them somewhere in the count. Started with four Stegosaurs, now they're down three. There's only one left. There were eight Triceratops, now there are only six. We know that one of them has been injured uh, fighting with each other. Uh, Procomsignathus... There were 49, then it was discovered there were 16 more at 65, uh, but now that 65 is down one, so one missing compy. <laughs> Athnelia, there were 16, then it was discovered that there were actually 23, they were breeding, but now there are only 15, because eight have gone missing. Velociraptors, uh, we had them at eight officially, then it showed up that there was 37, uh, but now they're down to 27. So they lost, uh, they lost 10 of them somewhere. Apatosaurs, there were 17 to start. Now there's only 12. I don't know where five apatosaurs hide from the count. It'd be crazy if five apatosaurs are dead already. Hadrosaurs. There were seven, but it discovered that there is actually 11, but now there are only five. So, uh, yeah, lots of dinosaurs are not where they belong. Dilophosaurs. They started with seven, and now they can only find four. There are only five of the pterosaurs can be found, and there used to be six. There were 33 Hypsilophodons, but then there were found to be 34, but now there's only finding 14 of them. The Euplocephalus, the, uh, the Ankylosaurs, there were 16 of them. Uh, now they can only find 9. The Styracosaurs, there were 18. Now they can only find 7. And the Microceratops, there were 22, but now they can only find 13. Now, where some of these animals are, we have witnessed in the book. The Big Rex is sleeping in the lagoon. At least 8 of the deadly raptors are destroyed. And a juvenile named Clarence is caged by Dr. Grant. One of the hadrosaurs was killed in a stampede. You know, but that's a piddling quantity of missing dinosaurs that we can explain. By the final tally, there's more like 89 missing dinosaurs that were accounted for yesterday. So that is, that's not good. I'd say that's not under control, even though this chapter is called Under Control. 
Recall if any animal is not moving or too close to the river, the motion sensors can't pick them up. And also recall that the areas not covered by the motion sensors are a contiguous series by which an animal can get anywhere in the park. So having a third of your dinosaurs unaccounted for is hardly under control by my account. The next matter we have here is equilibrium. Grant is unsurprised to see that there are fewer dinosaurs in the park since the blackout on 370. Now that the animals are mingling in the park, he sees that they are reaching a quote, true Jurassic equilibrium. Equilibrium is also described earlier in the novel by John Arnold. Quote, living systems, Arnold said, are not like mechanical systems. Living systems are never in equilibrium. They are inherently unstable. They may seem stable, but they are not. Everything is moving and changing. In a sense, everything is on the edge of collapse. Then why does Grant suggest that the park is nearing equilibrium? What, what's Creighton saying here? And frankly, we're not seeing the park coming into a balance. We're seeing it collapse. The predator-to-prey ratio said earlier in the novel, on page 43, is 1 to every 400, based upon African and Indian game park models. For example, 10,000 hadrosaurs, therefore, yield only 25 tyrannosaurs, according to that math. Jurassic Park has more than one carnivore and less than 400 total animals. Therefore, both sides of that 1 to 400 ratio is way out of equilibrium. And the food web will surely collapse in a matter of a few feeding cycles, probably in a month or something. The actual ratio, if you factor out the copies and the pterosaurs because they're not quite preying on other herbivores, the ratio is like 46 to 175. <laughs> and if we readjusted it and put the copies into the prey category, that might get closer to like 46 to 240. So that's 240 meals for 46 diners, sort of. Does that make any sense? 17 of those meals are apatosaurs, which might represent more than one meal, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine. Many of these herbivores are totally lethal, so predator ratio might shrink pretty quick as they actively start battling mature adult stegosaurs and ceratopsians and ankylosaurs. But in any case, they're not falling into a Jurassic equilibrium. They are collapsing their food web. Those are different things, but an interesting topic for Grant to bring up. Rather, they're all interacting in ways that was never expected of them as critters at the zoo, but also as nature intended, as they're almost all distinctly separate from each other by either significant geographic boundaries or unfathomable time differences. Very few of these animals would have lived alongside of each other. So from the youngest animals to the oldest, in the latest of the late Cretaceous ages, the Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops would have lived together in the Maastrichtian age of North America. Many millions of years before that, many, Styracosaurus, Yoplocephalus, Hadrosaurus, and Myasaura were all in the Campanian age of North America, perhaps living alongside one another. And Velociraptor was from the Campanian, but from Asia, nowhere near these guys. Then, many, many millions of years before that, the Microceratus, or the Microceratops, was from the Cenomanian Age, located in Asia. Then, many, many more millions of years before that, the Sierradactylus lived in the Albanian Age of South America, nowhere close to any of our other dinosaurs. Although, Darren did make a very good point that they could probably get wherever they wanted to go anywhere in the world because they were terrific flyers. And the Deinonychus Enteropus, upon which this novel's Velociraptors are named, they're from North America in the next age. Uh, later, which is the Aptian. Many more millions of years before that, across the Atlantic in Europe, Hypsilophodons lived in the Valanginian Age. All those animals were in the Cretaceous period. Now we're going back even further in the Jurassic period, Apatosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Othnelia, which is now the Nanosaurus, all lived in the Kimmeridgian Age of North America. So that's the late Jurassic. You'd have to go way back to the very earliest of the Jurassic, to the Hetangian Age of southern North America, to find Dilophosaurus. 
and our very oldest dinosaur dates unfathomably deep in time way back in the late Triassic period named the Norian Age where you'd find Procompsignathus, and it wouldn't have been eating up sauropod poop because there were no sauropods yet. So, few of these animals ever mingled with one another, uh, and they'd hardly fall into balance with each other. Recall, if the Velociraptors found man very strange and would have preferred not to attack them because they were so unfamiliar, what with being millions of years removed from ever having seen a human, well, newsflash, they were millions of years removed from everything else in the park, too. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is, in the end, this concept that the park was falling into any kind of equilibrium or balance is incorrect, or it's correct and depicted by an author who was making an egregious mistake, one or the other. Shipping news. The ship is returning. Recall it its ridiculously slow 18-hour trip from the mainland to Isla Nublar. So the boat will be arriving at, and here's the math, 11 a.m. plus 18 hours makes 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. So Sunday morning at 5 a.m., the crew will be mooring at the east dock. That's an early morning for that crew. The crew found three young raptors and destroyed them on page 370. So spoiler alert, this stupid ship is returning to Isla Nublar, but the island is going to have been firebombed before the end of the day. There won't be anywhere for them to dock after it's been napalmed. Or I guess there, I don't know, maybe it would just be a horribly burnt, smoldering bonfire raging and, and people will be able to dock? I don't know. Like, they're not going back to unload the gear that they weren't able to unload before they were rushed away by the oncoming tropical storm. Presumably, they located that all the raptors that were stowed away, only three, but even if they hadn't, they could have still just moored off the shore of Punta Arenas and had an exterminator come to the ship and make sure the, the boat was clear of animals or something instead of returning to the island. It's a strange situation for that boat, but uh, we'll never hear of it again, so it doesn't matter. Damned Gennaro. I think there's a case to be made that Crichton is looking to torture Donald Gennaro in this final chapter. We've had Dennis Nedry, John Arnold, and Henry Wu all pay for their overconfidence and misplaced great pride in their own abilities. Nedry believed in his perfect plan. Arnold believed in his perfect system, and Wu believed in his perfected cloning process. And they were all swiftly dispatched and disemboweled by carnivorous dinosaurs. But Gennaro is a different case. We learn his daughter's name. We learn that he was just a financier doing his job to help his client, John Hammond. But he's been irresponsible. Recall, at once, when he and Muldoon drove out to pick up the guests in the rain, but instead discovered that the Tyrannosaur had attacked the land cruisers, he had that at that moment decided that he was going to close the park. Then, Gennaro faced many fears to accept a heroic role throughout the cleanup and damage control for the rest of his adventure. Uh, but he's still responsible, and he's being forced to go through hell if he's to be forgiven. And I think there's enough going on here to suggest that Crichton is torturing Gennaro, metaphorically putting him through hell. Early in this chapter, Grant poignantly labels Gennaro as being individually responsible for the tragedies of Jurassic Park outlines his role in making it come to light, and commands that he take responsibility. Part of that is this upcoming mission, to go and count the raptor eggs. Before entering, Grant terrifies Gennaro with his analogy to American alligator nesting habits, including the full-fledged violent attack that they might be facing if things go south in the southern fields. Then, the sulfurous smell of the volcanic fields, the plumes of smoke, the bubbling mud, and the ground literally feels hot to the touch Gennaro, quote, felt as if he were walking through hell on 376, and then it's further described as a, quote, stinking hellish place with the velociraptor somewhere around. Gennaro also has a moment of self-reflection in comparing himself with Dr. Grant. Is there anything he's waited his whole life for? And he decides no. But this is definitely a moment of self-reflection on Gennaro's part, as part of his penance, maybe. The imagery is clear. To be forgiven, you must take responsibility. Twice, Gennaro was asked if he wanted to live dangerously. Twice, he accepted the challenge, despite being scared. But bravery isn't enough for redemption from Crichton. You have to take responsibility. 
Maybe through this trial, Gennaro can be reborn a new man and make it out alive. And hint, the rebirth metaphor will be very heavy-handed when we get there. Timeline. This chapter takes place at approximately 3 p.m. It says four hours had passed since the last stated time, which was the 11 a.m. deadline for the ship reaching Punta Arenas. We're told it's getting late in the day in the day if the helicopters don't arrive soon. Quote, they would have to wait until morning on 369. So the sun's falling. It's the afternoon. It's about 3 p.m., something like that. Contrivances in plot. We've got two issues that Crichton delivers in this chapter, and we have to take a moment to wrinkle our noses at it. One is Malcolm's helicopter. We're told that, quote, an air ambulance to carry Malcolm to a hospital had been reached on page 369. But this was already done ages ago. This was first reported back in the chapter Aviary when Arnold, back when he was still alive, said, I've called for a doctor for you on page 277. That was at 8 a.m. as reported on page 276. This is seven hours later. And it was supposed to be a 40-minute trip, according to what Hammond told us on page 76. So Crichton forgot about something in his plotting here. This doesn't add up. That You know, twice they've called for a helicopter. Uh, second is the body count. This has to be discussed. We're told that there were 24 people on the island, 6 dead, and 8 missing on page 269. And that doesn't work for me. Here's my tally. Let's start with the, the stars of the novel. Hammond, Tim, Lex, Allen, Ellie, Malcolm, Gennaro, Harding, and Muldoon. That's 9 people of the 24. Then, those who've died, Regis, Nedry, Arnold, and Wu. That's four more, totaling 13 of 24 people on the island and four of the six known dead. Now, on page 105, during the tour, we're told that there are four techs in the labs and there were more technicians in the next room on page 107, plus nursery staff, including Kathy with the baby raptor and Maria in Hammond's bungalow serving ginger ice cream. Let's, let's say that's nine more. So that's 22 out of 24 of the people. Then we meet Carlos and Ramon, the workmen on page 244. We see more gardeners and workmen on page 246. And two Tekken workers were mentioned on page 309 and 381. That's another six that we could possibly concede that, that, that the, you know, the two Tekken workers were Carlos and Ramon from earlier. But that still brings us to a very conservative four more people, officially exceeding the 24 people tally. Plus, I think there were likely more than one gardener. Muldoon says to market for the gardeners to fix in the morning. And then there are the guards. There are at least two guards. We distinctly see two bodies in the visitor center on distinctly different floors. And we know another one named Jimmy, though he could have been one of the bodies. I don't know. Plus, there was a woman handing out pith helmets on page 134. Men inside the control room on page 114. Animal handlers on page 138. A few staff on page 176. And two black men on page 134. And another, quote, black man at the raptor pen on page 118. Remember him? He was the one that warned Malcolm to be thankful that the fences were there. Uh, when the raptors lunged at them during the tour. So that's that's another very conservatively eight people, but this could easily be like 15 people. There are more than 30 people on the island, but Crichton appears to have overlooked the gardeners, animal handlers, the, and Hammond's exotic domestic servant, for example, when making this tally, and making matters worse, or more confusing in any case, at the beginning of the novel, we're given another dubious figure. In the introduction, it said of the engine incident, the actual incident occurred in the most remote region of Central America, and fewer than 20 people were there to witness it, of those only a handful survive. And that's on the Roman numeral page 11. So Crichton's mythology is scattered. He's lost count or lost track or never really cared about the actual details about how many people are on this island, which makes it strange that he brings it up a couple times, right? And what makes a handful? Five? As in I can count how many people survived on one hand? Maybe it's a colloquialism without a definite answer, whatever a handful is, but a handful in Jurassic Park's case is going to 
represent like higher than a dozen people easily. <sighs> Only a handful of people survive. Lots of people are going to survive. Big questions. Sattler tells Gennaro that Grant appears so calm and focused about investigating this raptor nest, even though it's incredibly risky and dangerous, because it's something he's thought about his entire life. And Gennaro hears this and reflects upon his own life and wonders if he can relate. Quote, he wondered what it would be like, whether there was anything he had waited for his whole life. He decided that there wasn't anything. Now, 377. The great scholar and ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said, We make our own luck. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. In any case, here's a moment where Grant is meeting his opportunity, and, and that Gennaro reflects upon it to himself and finds that he's lacking is an interesting moment for us to read. This is a moment where a character is empathizing with another character, taking a moment to see if they can relate in a meaningful way. Pausing to specifically do this at this moment, while I've argued that Gennaro is being metaphorically put through hell and having his character tested, he's finding that he cannot say he's lived his life with a true purpose or focus. This is one of the big questions this novel asks of us, something we should take away from the story. Ask yourself, is there anything you've waited for for your whole life? Or put differently, what are you waiting for? What drives your attention? What are you doing about it? Do you have the courage to face it when you meet it? And Seneca would ask, what are you doing to be prepared for that moment? In the previous chapter, the big question asked by Malcolm was, what should we do with our power and our technological advances? How can we use them to improve humanity and maybe save ourselves? Jurassic Park has its philosophical moments, and these bigger questions are ones you and I, as readers, uh, can certainly relate with. All right, I want to sign off today saying a great big thank you to Darren Nash for joining me. Thank you so much. It was uh, terrific. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry and the Worst of Them All, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes, so by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com, or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also, not that too. Until next time.